Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. There. So I'm, I'm glad that we're inside. Well, brethren, let's um, stand so we can begin with prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pause before beginning our study because we want to acknowledge you and we want to ask for your presence here with us. We just thank you so much, God, for your holy word. Uh, We thank you for the men uh, that have lived before us, that have been faithful to you, that have sacrificed so much so that we can have your word with us today. And we pray now for you to be with us. We pray for the Spirit of Jesus Christ to be among us and that you would deepen our understanding and that that deepening of understanding would change our behavior and conform us to the image of your son. We thank you, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Brethren, please uh, be seated. I think um, many of you are expecting me to continue with the book of Acts, but I've decided not to do that. (laughs) I think that uh, now that we have the weekly Bible study, it would make more sense to cover Acts in the weekly study so that we can have that momentum. Uh, It is a story, and I'm just finding that when we do it monthly, that it takes a while for us to re-engage and remember where we were last time. Uh, And it's going to take a couple of years for us to get through Acts if we do it monthly, whereas if we do it weekly, we can do it in a few months. So beginning on Wednesday, I'll, I'll, I'll begin at the beginning with the book of Acts. So, Teresa, that means I'll get back to chapter 3, <laughs> which we somehow uh, missed recording. So we'll begin at uh, Acts chapter 1, and then we'll go through every week uh, the book of Acts and then keep that momentum and, and the context of the story flow. I think um, so far we got right up to the beginning of Paul's ministry. We'll go back and then have that full context. What I want to cover today, and I think it's timely, as we are trying to build a culture in our congregation of caring, courtesy, and consideration. Those are our core values, and those core values are dimensions of agape. They are, they are expressions of agape. And I think if I all say to you, the love chapter, uh, every one of us would know which chapter that is. And that's what I want to study today is the love chapter, of 1 Corinthians 13, and let's just go through it together. And let's go, through, let's go through it together with a view of how do we stack up. Not how does the person beside you stack up, but, but how do we stack up. Let, let's evaluate ourselves individually. But also, in addition to evaluating ourselves individually, we're just part of the puzzle. Let's evaluate ourselves as a congregation. How do we stack up as a congregation And then let's ask ourselves, what can I do? How can I change to be more in compliance with agape love? And how can I help change the congregation so that as a congregation, we're more in compliance with agape love? So 1 Corinthians 13 actually begins in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31. So there should be no chapter break. 1 Corinthians 12:31 says but covet earnestly the best gifts. And then I think it would be more understandable if instead of a colon after gifts we put a period or even an exclamation mark and then completely ignore the rest of the verse that says and yet I show you a more excellent way. Completely ignore that because that is parenthetical. So he's making a point about coveting earnestly the best gifts. Stop. He continues this point in chapter 14 and verse 1. In chapter 14 and verse 1, it begins with follow after agape. And so after follow after agape, we could put a period there and and basically remove that so that we connect 1231 and 14.1, covet earnestly the best gifts, 
and desire these spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. And yet I show you a more excellent way, all of chapter 13, and follow after agape. That is all parenthetical. So he's saying to them, covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, before I tell you what the best gift is, let me tell you a more excellent way. That these gifts mean nothing unless we have agape. So before I tell you what the best gift is, I want to establish in your mind that we must have agape or the gifts mean nothing. So if you're going to pursue the best gift and you pursue it without agape, it's worthless. So before I tell you what the best gift is, I need to establish how important agape is. So with that, that's the point he's making. All of chapter 13 then is parenthetical. Let's go through chapter 13 together. And I'm just going to take off my jacket if you don't mind. Chapter 13, we're dealing with a congregation then that is really spiritual. So if we were to visit this congregation, we would be amazed at how spiritual everybody is and at how gifted they are and how knowledgeable they are. So this is sort of the spiritual Olympics, and these are the gold medalists. So you go to Corinth, and everybody thinks really highly of themselves. And then Paul now is trying to tell them, you've got it all wrong. There's something fundamental that you're missing. And he begins in verse 1 of 13. And as we read this, brethren, we're asking ourselves, what is true spirituality? How do we measure true spirituality? How do we know when someone is truly spiritual? And this is what we're going to see now in this chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not agape, I have become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So I've got this spectacular gift that I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. It's, it's quite phenomenal. When I, when I open my mouth, I'm mesmerizing. It's almost hypnotic how powerful the words are and how, how the, the, the gift of rhetoric that I have. And yet Paul takes all of that and completely diminishes it. And here in this uh, commentary by a gentleman by the name of Rick Renner on renner.org, he says, it seems that the Apostle Paul encountered a group of people who were extremely super spiritual in the city of Corinth. However, Paul was unimpressed with these people and their level of spirituality because they had an obvious lack of love. Their deficit of love bothered him so deeply that he alluded to it when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13.1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not agape, I have become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The words sounding brass are very important in this verse. Let's begin our study today with the word brass. It comes from the Greek word kalkos, an old word that referred to metal. However, it wasn't just any metal. It was bronze or copper to which a small amount of tin had been added. This tin caused the metal to have a hollow, empty sound when it was beaten. That is why Paul used the word sounding, the Greek word echo, which described a noise that reverberates or echoes. When these two words are used together, they portrayed the endless beating of metal that produces a hollow, annoying, irritating echo that seems to eternally reverberate. So when Paul wrote about a sounding brass, he borrowed an illustration from the pagan world of Corinth to make his point about super-spiritual people who demonstrate no love. The illustration he chose to use was the endless, non-stop, annoying, aggravating, irritating, frenzied beating and clanging of brass that was performed in pagan worship and that echoed ceaselessly throughout the city of Corinth. The citizens of Corinth could never escape the endless banging of this metal. So this was an illustration everyone in the Corinthian church could readily comprehend. So, I mean, just between us, if somebody gets up and they're a spectacular orator and they're saying all the right things, wouldn't we be impressed? And Paul is saying it's completely, it's not just worthless, it's annoying. 
It's, it's, the, it's like it's pagan worship. It has no value without love. So this is this Corinthian church pursuing these gifts, and he's going to tell them what the best gift is, but he wants them to understand. The gift by itself is nothing. He goes on in verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. I mean, this is very impressive. Got the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not agape, I am nothing. Nothing. The Greek is uden uh, emi. So, so my identity, who I am, is nothing. Even though I have these phenomenal gifts. So first he says that um, I, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, so I'm annoying. Here he says, I'm actually worse than annoying, I'm nothing. Nothing. I don't count. I, I, what it means really is to go out of existence. So if I have all of this, but I don't have agape, I'm going to go out of existence. I'm going to be nothing, even though these are spectacular gifts. Look at 1 John. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 13. Look at 1 John 2. First John 2 and verse 9. He that says he is in the light. So I might come to you, brethren, and say, I'm in the light. I, I, I'm enlightened. I understand the scriptures. I want to teach you the scriptures. So that's what I say. What I do is something else. I hate my brother. So behind your back, I just hate you. And I can't stand you, and I'm trying to turn other people against you. In your face, I might smile. But deep in my heart, I hate you. But meanwhile, I'm telling you, I'm enlightened. I understand the scriptures. The scripture says, this person is in darkness even until now. I'm saying I'm in the light. I'm actually in darkness. And why? Because I hate my brother. So it doesn't matter all the knowledge I might have. It doesn't matter all the gifts I might have. If I hate my brother, I'm not in the light. I'm dwelling in darkness even till now. He that loves his brother abides in the light. So this is the deciding factor. This is the criterion as God looks in our heart to decide, is she in the light or is she in the darkness? Is he in the light or is he in the darkness? There's one criterion. Does he love his brother? Does she love her brother her sister? He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. These are not just throwaway words like, yeah, let's just read over that. The church is at risk of stumbling. And as we face an uncertain future, and what is most likely going to be a hostile future, brethren are going to stumble. We may stumble. Our insurance, the way we can be assured that no matter what happens, we will not stumble, is right here. To be in the light. To walk in the light. And the way we can be confident we won't stumble is that we love our brother. He that loves his brother. It's very simple, brethren. It's right here. He that loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no occasion of stumbling in him. I mean, it's very, very simple. It's simple, but it's hard. Some of us are hard to love. Some of us have idiosyncrasies. But if the spirit is in us, we are your brother. We are your sister. And if the spirit is in you and the spirit is in me, we will love each other because Christ loves the church. And if the spirit of Christ is in us, we will love the church. But he that, verse 11, he that hates his brother is in darkness. He repeats it again. He's in darkness and he walks in darkness. He can be gifted. This is not talking about whether or not he's gifted. He can be very gifted. But if he hates his brother, he's in darkness. So he's here preaching, he's saying all the right things, and he's in darkness. Because in his heart, he hates his brother. This is quite amazing. And walks in darkness and knows not where he goes, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. He has no idea 
He has no idea that he's walking into the lake of fire. He's confident. He's very spiritual. He's very gifted. He's telling you how things ought to be. And God is looking at him and saying, oh, no. He's heading straight off a cliff, straight into the lake of fire. And he has no idea. Why? Because he hates his brother. That's all it is. So I think, brethren, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Actually, let's just go to 1 John 3, just before we go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 John 3, verse 11. I think, you know, we all get hurt. We're a small community. We're rubbing shoulders against each other. Sometimes an elbow is going to get in the way. Sometimes we're going to do something that's going to hurt somebody. And how we respond is what Christ is looking at. It's not the fact that somebody got an elbow. It's how did they respond to the elbow. That's what Christ is looking at. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. This is, it, it, it's never changed. It has been consistent. Christ came into the earth, and he wasn't making it up as he was going along. He came with a message. And so from the very beginning, this is the message, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, so this is now the wicked one entering the equation, and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. So often when there's animosity, it's projection. That there's something wrong with the brother who's hating, and he's projecting onto the other brother or sister what's in his own heart. And that's what Cain did. Marvel not, verse 13, my brethren, if the world hates you, we know. So, so there's a brother that's walking in darkness, has no idea where he's walking because his hatred has blinded him. We who are in the light, we know that we have passed from death unto life. We know where we're going. We're going into eternal life. We have this absolute confidence. How do we know? Because we use the same criteria God does. Because we love the brethren. So God is looking down and he's evaluating us to see what's in our heart. Do we love the brethren? If we don't, he says we're in darkness. And we have no idea that we're heading into the lake of fire. At the same time, he looks at us and looks into our heart and he sees the love that we have for the brethren. And he's like, great. This person's on their way into my family to live with me eternally. And we can have that same confidence because we can evaluate our own hearts. What's our attitude toward our brethren? What's our attitude? Do we, you know, and not that the brethren treat us well. You invited me over and gave me a nice meal. I'll invite you over and give you a nice meal. That's not what God is looking at. It's that I offended you and you invited me over and gave me a nice meal. That's what God is looking at. Because we offended him. We were his enemies. And he invited us over for a nice meal, a Passover meal, even though we offended him. We were his enemies. We hated him, and he loved us. So it's this kind of agape love. If we know we have this, we're confident we have eternal life. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it is quite a simple equation. We either have this love or we don't. And if we have it, we're on our way to eternal life. In fact, eternal life already dwells inside us. If we don't, we're on our way out of existence. And that's what Paul means when he says, I'm nothing. I've become nothing. I've gone out of existence. It doesn't matter. I can be gifted. I can be very, very gifted. I could have all the gifts. Spectacular. When I show up, it's spectacular. And God says he has no idea where he's going. I'll, I'll use the gifts. I'll, I'll edify the church with the gifts. But when it's all over, I'm throwing him in the lake of fire. He can't be in my family because he's a murderer like Cain. Sober, sober words, brethren. 1 Corinthians 13. So all these gifts, no love, we're uden imi. I'm nothing. My, my ego, my existence, my identity is nothing. goes out of existence. Verse 3. And though, this is the one that shocks me, verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not agape, it profits me nothing. So I have to scratch my head on this one. How can it be that I sell all my goods and feed the poor? 
and I don't have love. I, I would think that's a very that's the very act of love. That's the very definition of love. That I'm willing to sell everything I have, gather up the money, and feed the poor. And now I have nothing because I've fed the poor. Well, I guess the only thing that can explain this is intention. Maybe I'm doing this to be seen of men. Maybe I'm doing this to be recognized. Remember um, Ananias and Sapphira who sold their possessions and brought it and laid the money down at the apostles' feet and they were struck dead because they were not doing it out of agape. They were doing it with an agenda for, for, for personal progress. So here he says, when we behave this way, it doesn't really matter what the act is. So this is the gift of service. And I give my body to be burned. Maybe this is the, the gift of faith. It could be faith that I'm so confident that I'll stand up and I'm willing to be burned. But I'm not doing it out of agape. He says it profits me nothing. So first he says I am nothing. Udeni me. Here he says uden ofelumai. Ofelumai. Which means so to gain something for myself, but here he says, when I do this, I gain nothing for myself. There's, there's no advantage in doing this. Look at, and again, we're going to come back, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at Matthew 7. So there was just no gain, there was no benefit in doing this. <clears throat> Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And I say when we search the scriptures, brethren, the will of God is that we believe in his son Jesus Christ and that we love one another. So if we don't believe in Christ that he is the son of God. And if we don't love one another, we're not doing the will of God. doesn't matter what else we do. If we don't accept Christ, and if we don't love the brethren that God has given to Christ, we're not doing the will of God. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Weren't we gifted? And, and didn't we use the gift of prophecy in your name? And in your name, we've cast out devils. We were on your side. We didn't like the devils. We cast them out. And in your name, we've done many wonderful works. We sold all our goods and we fed the poor. We gave our bodies to be burned. All in your name. These, these were wonderful. We, we, you know, when we look at our works, we declare them wonderful in your name. And here he says, and then, verse 23, Will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And I think we've always sort of seen that iniquity as just lawlessness. But I think we can now put maybe a finer point on this, that if we do not love, we're involved in iniquity. That the, the root of the law is agape. And if we have agape, against such there is no law. So let's go back now to 1 Corinthians 13. So the apostle opens up this inset, this parenthetical chapter, by establishing just how important agape is. So he's explained to the brethren um, how the body of Christ works, how the gifts are distributed so that the whole body has to work together and, and no one person should see themselves as superior to the other. And in fact, even the what we think is the inferior parts, those are the ones we should elevate because those are the ones that God distributes certain gifts that others won't have that are going to be essential to the body. Now after establishing that without agape, the whole enterprise is worthless, that, that we're basically heading out of existence. Now he begins to explain what agape is. So first, this is how important it is. Now let's look at how important, uh, what it is. So what is it? 
Verse 4. Agape suffers long, and it's kind. Then he tells us what it's not. It envies not, it vaunts not itself, it's not puffed up. Uh, Hold your place, let's go to Matthew 18 for what we mean by suffer, what he means by suffers long. What does it mean to suffer long? Verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? I mean, is that a lot? If I, like seven times? Not once, not twice, I'll, I'll go seven? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Brethren, that's what it means to suffer long. That your brother sins against you and you take it not once, not twice, not seven times, but seventy times seven times. That is what it means to suffer long. You're not thinking of yourself, you're thinking of your brother. Therefore is the kingdom, verse 23, of heaven, it's likened unto a certain king. If you want to understand the kingdom of heaven, it's like this. It's like a certain king which would take account of his servants. So the king is God. He takes account of his servants. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is why Paul says that without agape, I'm going out of existence. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents, so a great deal of money. But for as much as he didn't have the ability to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So that's, it's, it's owed, you don't have it, this is how we're going to deal with it. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me. Be long-suffering with me, and I will pay you all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. So he was long-suffering. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, so a fraction. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So the analogy here, brethren, is when our brother sins against us. So we sin against God, a great debt that we cannot pay. It it earns us the death penalty. We can't possibly pay it. He pays it for us and forgives us. Somebody steps on our toe, and we grab them by the throat, and we exact vengeance, and we want recompense from them. And and God is saying, wait, wait a minute, hold on. Verse 29, and his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, be long-suffering with me, and I'll pay you all. And he wouldn't, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, so they see it, they were very sorry. And they came and told it to their Lord, everything that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you asked me. Should not you also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, in the very same way, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we can see how God will behave. In the very same way shall my heavenly father do also unto you If you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So we can have the confidence that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. If, however, we don't love the brethren, our hearts condemn us. And we know then that this is how God is going to treat us. That he's going to look into our hearts and see that we haven't forgiven our brother, yet he's forgiven us. And he's going to require it of us. 
the scripture also said that love is kind. The, the actual word that is used is krestu omai, and it means to act benevolently. To be kind means to make yourself useful to somebody. Let's stay in Matthew and go to Matthew 5 to see what is meant by kindness. Love is kind. Are we kind? Is our congregation kind? Can it be kinder? What does it mean to be kind? Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43, you've heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you. Be kind to them that hate you. Be useful to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Again, be useful to them. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. So that's agape. Agape doesn't mean that you have to be good. It's not conditional love. If you behave yourself, then I will love you. No. Mankind misbehaves and God sends his son into the world for a misbehaving mankind. And we want to be like God. He sends his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the publicans the same. So we have to be beyond this. And and agape is to be like Christ. The very people who hated him, he made himself useful to them. He was kind to them. And that's how we have to think. It's not a question of, do we like you? It's not a question of, does your behavior conform to our standards? It's, we have agape. And we love. And we will make ourselves useful and beneficial to everyone. He says that agape does not vaunt itself and it's not puffed up. These words mean vaunt itself, purpuru amai, means to boast oneself. It's, It's to tell you how great I am. So I have the opportunity to speak to you, and what I really want you to understand is don't miss, if you're you're making notes, write this down. If you're making notes, write down, I am great. I am such a great person. You know, everywhere I go, people just seem to see how great I am. It's almost like there's some kind of a halo over my head, and everybody seems to recognize this. I hope you're making notes. This is very important. This is not agape. Agape is not self-centered. It says also it's not puffed up, which is to be inflated. So somehow it's inflated. Look at uh, Luke 18. Luke 18 and verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. So one is inflating himself, the other is deflating. But smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So if we have this agape, the spirit of Christ working in us, even, and again, individually, 
but collectively. Let's think congregationally. Let's think of our culture. We're so great. We're so great. You ought to come to our congregation because like, we, we, we got it going on. We can't be like this. We're just here to serve others. And if God has blessed us with anything, we're grateful for what he's blessed us with. So let's think individually, but let's also think collectively. 1 Corinthians 13. And verse 5. So it seems it's easier for Paul to say what agape is not than to actually say what it is. It's, it's many things, but it's almost like the Ten Commandments where God spends a lot of time saying, you shall not, you shall not, because there's so much we can do. And it's easier just to say what the boundaries are. So here's what it is not. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. So agape has good manners. And, and something as simple, you know, I was in Ottawa uh, last week, and one of the brethren there, uh, we were talking, or they, they, there was a group of people talking, and I joined. And as I joined, she turned to me and said, we're just talking about, and then she brought me into the conversation. I mean, how many times have you joined a group of brethren, and they're talking, and they just ignore you? And you have no idea, you kind of have to figure out what they're talking about. Just something as simple as that to consider the other person and, and bring them into the conversation so that they're caught up now and can fu- fully participate. Agape has good, good manners. It doesn't be say, behave itself unseemly. The word is eskimoneo, and it means to behave in an uncomely manner. Look at Third John, Third John 9. He says in 3 John 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. I mean, this is just rude behavior. The apostle's writing to the church, but he won't receive them. Therefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, his behavior, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. This is, un- this is unbecoming. Brethren should not speak of other brethren or or even leaders with malicious words, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren. He forbids them that would and casts them out of the church. Agape doesn't behave this way. We're going to go to Philippians 2. Just continuing in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, it doesn't behave itself unseemly, it seeks not its own, and it's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. Look at Philippians 2 in terms of seeking not her own. Verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know of your state. So I'm going to send this young man Timothy to you so I can know what's going on with you, because I can't get to you. Why am I sending Timothy? Verse 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state for all seek their own not the things which are jesus christ i mean this is terrible so paul is in rome and whoever is around him at this time he's uncomfortable sending them to philippi because when they get there they're going to have an agenda other than jesus christ's they're going to be seeking their own agenda The only person he can think to send of the people that are with him is Timothy. Because Timothy is all about Christ. And he's not going to seek his own. He's going to seek their welfare, agape, the the, the good of the other. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Let's go back to Philippians 1. The scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 goes on to say, so that's what we covered there was that it doesn't seek its own. He also said it's not easily provoked and it thinks no evil. Look at verse 15 of Philippians 1 where Paul is imprisoned and there are people out there preaching the gospel. And he says, some indeed preach gospel even out of envy and strife. That's their intention. And some also of goodwill. 
the one preach Christ out of contention. So that's possible, that people can be doing the good work, even gifted to do so, but their intention is contention. They're in a competition. The one preach Christ out of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So they think that they're going to hurt me by competing with me. But the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. So they know I'm imprisoned. I'm going to be defending myself for the gospel. And they're helping me out because I'm imprisoned. The other see that I'm imprisoned and they think that they're hurting me by doing what I can't do. What then? This is, again, we're covering that. He's not easily provoked. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So, so they're trying to provoke him. He's not easily provoked. He's like, this is great. As long as the true gospel is going out, uh, God will deal with them. That's between them and God. The main thing is I'm in prison, but the gospel is still going out. And so he thinks no evil, and he's not easily provoked. And look at um, verse 4, uh, chapter 4 of Philippians, sorry, in terms of thinking no evil. And verse 8, where do we spend our time? Where do we focus our thoughts? Verse 8, finally, brethren, in Philippians 4, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue and if there are any praise, think on these things. So this is what we spend our time thinking about. So Paul is not caught up with the fact that people are out there competing with him preach, as long as they're preaching the true gospel. He's just happy they're preaching the true gospel. And he's not going to get caught up in, you know, what are their intentions and why are they competing with me? He's not spending his time there. Where he's spending his time is great. The gospel's getting out. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13 and verse 6. Agape does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. And again, we just saw that with, with Paul where he's rejoicing in the fact that the truth is being, being spread, the true gospel is being preached. He's not rejoicing in iniquity. And, and sometimes, you know, again, this is just human nature. We may hear of an adversary who gets their comeuppance, right? Use that word here, comeuppance. Uh, what's another word? They're just desserts. They, they get what's, what's owing to them, right? So they're our adversary. They're causing us uh, stress and, and grief, and then something bad happens to them. There's a part, admit it, there's a part inside each of us that's like, yes! That's rejoicing in iniquity. That's, rejo- that's not agape. We, the agape would be sorry. Because we, we, we have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We have no pleasure in the misfortune of the wicked. But that they would repent. And so we have to watch this carnal human nature that we're not rejoicing in iniquity. The other way we could read this is just sinfulness can be pleasurable. And that's the whole thing of Hollywood, is to make sin look attractive, make it look pleasurable, make it look like fun. And so people are rejoicing in sinfulness. And agape does not do that. Instead, so now this is what it does do. So we've seen what it is, what it's not, what it doesn't do. Now what does it do? This is what agape does. And this is, again, tying back to what Paul said when he established how important it is that without agape, I'm nothing. Without agape, I'm heading into non-existence. How can I be sure that I'm heading into eternity? Well, because I have agape. Perfect love casts out fear. Because perfect love is focused on the other and the well-being of the other, not on self. And so when we have this love, verse 7, it bears all things, not some things, everything. Agape bears everything. It believes all things. In other words, we really believe in the best outcome. 
We know that God has our best interest at heart, and whatever befalls us, we trust our Father. We believe him. So whatever we're going through, we trust God. It hopes all things. You know, when Stephen was being stoned to death, he said, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. In other words, he's hoping that they will repent. Despite the fact that they're stoning him to death, it still hopes all things. It endures all things. He that endures to the end will be saved. And what we're seeing, brethren, is without agape, we will not endure. That what's coming is so brutal that brother will betray brother. And the agape of many, not a few, the agape of many will wax cold. So the race that we're in, the fight that we're in, the struggle that we're in, is to build up this agape to to such an extent that we are fearless, we're without anxiety, we're without worry, and we're faithful to the end. This chapter is just so incredibly important. And the way most people treat it is, oh, it's time for a wedding. Let's read the love chapter. And then that's the last time they think about it. Whereas this is, uh, this is, this is our instruction manual. This is how we succeed. And this is how we can have confidence that we will succeed. Look at Revelation 13. I think personally, the church is overconfident. I think we're overconfident. And Paul keeps warning us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be overconfident. Have some fear and trembling and work it out. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. Great. This beast power finally comes to an end. Hallelujah. Let's celebrate. The evil has passed because this beast is ferocious. And it's called a beast because it consumes God's people. It destroys God's people. And finally, it is destroyed. Time for celebration. And his deadly wound was healed. Uh Uh-oh. Bad news. It was destroyed good news, but then something happened, and it was healed. The beast is back. It goes offline, and now it comes back online. And all the world wondered after the beast. It really comes back online. It comes back online with a vengeance, and the whole world wonders. Not just a part of the world, the whole world. This is a global phenomenon now. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And is anybody able to make war with him? So this thing, when it comes back, it comes back global and ferocious and with an appetite for God's people. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given to him to continue 40 and two months. So he's got this 42-month period where nothing can withstand him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So this is not a subtle anymore. He's coming out and blaspheming God. And the whole world is wondering at his might. They're not wondering at his blasphemy. The blasphemy is fine. What they're wondering at is, well, could, can anybody withstand him? Might is right, so he must be right. And it was given unto him. So not only was he given power for 42 months, there's a specific power that he was given in verse 7. It was given unto him to make war with the saints. And this is where we have to worry, brethren. This is where Matthew says that brother shall betray brother. Because this thing is ferocious. This thing is brutal. And if, we're sel- if we have an ounce of self-interest, we're going to act in self-interest. If we are full of agape, we're going to act in Christ's interest. What, what would Christ do? How do we glorify Christ? How can we uphold Christ's name? Christ's name is being blasphemed. That's not right. 
we're going to stand up to honor Christ. And we're going to love our brethren. Because this is the Father's will. That we believe that Christ is the Son of God and that we love one another. We're going to do the Father's will. To the end. And agape is what's going to empower us to do this. It was given unto him to make war with the saints. And not just to make war with them, to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So we know that this gospel will be preached in the whole world. And we're going to have fruit all over the world. But this beast is going to go all over the world hunting down the saints. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. So you either worship him or we kill you. We want a world that only worships this beast. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Slain from the foundation of the world. If any man has an ear, let him hear. So Paul says, without agape, I'm nothing. I go out of existence. With agape, I have confidence that I've passed from death unto life. Not this temporary death. I've passed from the final death, the second death, unto eternal life. Because I have this agape. I I love the brethren. I see Christ in the brethren, and I love the brethren. And when I feel this love of the brethren activated inside of me, I'm confident. I've passed from death unto life because I've got this agape. And as long as this agape is working in us, we believe all things and we can bear all things. 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, verse 7. Agape bears everything. It believes everything that God says. It hopes in everything. And it endures all things. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Agape never fails. This is where we can have confidence. This is what never fails. Agape never fails. But whether there be prophecy, so you can have the gift of prophecy, I can have the gift of prophecy, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, I've got the gift of tongues, they shall cease. There'll be a time when it's not necessary to work in tongues because everybody's going to have one pure language. Prophecy won't be necessary because they'll all be fulfilled. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So all of these gifts that the Corinthians are chasing after, Paul is saying, be careful. They're all temporary. The the, the purpose of the gifts is to edify the church. But when the church becomes perfect, the gifts won't be necessary because the church will be edified to perfection. The church will have now been matured. So while the church is in this edification process, it's necessary to distribute the gifts. Once the church is mature, without spot and without wrinkle, there's no need for the gifts. So you're clamoring after the gifts. That's not the thing you should clamor after. What we should earnestly strive for is agape. That's the foundation. Then whatever gifts we have, we use them out of agape. But once that purpose is done, God is love. God is agape. And agape is eternal. Agape never fails. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is part in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. In other words, holy, super spiritual Corinthians, you're children. You're operating on a very immature level. When a baby is born, the only thing it thinks about is itself. And somewhere between that newborn baby that every mother knows is only thinking of itself there gets to a point where they transition and they can now have consideration and think of others. So somewhere between being a newborn baby and then becoming a mother yourself, where you are now fully able to think of others, there's some sort of transition period where we stop being so self-absorbed and we begin to think of others. And that's what Paul is saying has to happen spiritually. We need to grow up and put on agape so that we're no longer self-centered. We now, the way we think, the way we operate is all about the welfare and best interest of others. When I became a man, I put away childish things. 
and, and running after gifts for self-glorification is very childish. Very, very childish. And he actually says to them in verse 3 that he had to feed them with milk and not with meat because they just can't handle the meat. They're immature. For now, verse 12, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even also, even as also I am known. And now abides, and abides, it's going to dwell. Now abides faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is agape. Let's, uh, yeah, we, I think we have time. Let's look at Hebrews 12. greatest of these is agape this is what abides not the gifts but these characteristics and the greatest thing that abides is agape Uh, hebrews 12 verse 25 see that you refuse not him that speaks for if they escaped not who refused him that spoke on earth much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shall shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. So we have to endure to the end. There's going to be a removal of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So agape cannot be shaken. And if we have agape, we will remain. Wherefore... We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. So let's just, uh, the chapter break is uh, artificial. He's talking about what will remain. And he flows right into let brotherly love continue. Let's. Um, conclude in 1 John 3. 1 John 3. In verse 11. Actually, let's, we, we read verse 11. Let's just drop down to verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So we already know. If we don't love the brethren, we know. And our heart condemns us. When, when we hear these words, our, heart, our conscience is already telling us we, we don't really love the brethren. And if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows even more than we know what's in our heart. He says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Then we know we've passed from death unto life, and we love his appearing. We're looking forward to his appearing, because our hearts do not condemn us. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. What we ask in his will, because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And what are those things that are pleasing in his sight? What is the commandment? And this is his commandment. Two things, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's it. Believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And once we do that, and we realize that the spirit of Christ is in each other, then we love one another. We love Christ as he gave us commandment. So, brethren, I hope that that, that study is helpful. I think, to me, it is the instruction manual for success. It's the formula for success. The world is unraveling around us. We can be calm and we can be confident when we're following these instructions. We don't have to have the... There's going to be a lot of anxiety. There's going to be a lot of depression. There's going to be a lot of... Maybe we're going to see suicides. The the world as we know it is unraveling. We don't have to unravel. If anything, we can ravel. We can get closer. We can get tighter. We can become more calm, more excited that all of this means Christ's return is closer. And, and, And we're not afraid of his return. We love his appearing because our hearts don't condemn us. 
So I'll stop there, brethren, and maybe ask um, or, or open it up for a couple of questions or comments, and then we'll, we'll have a break. I have a question uh, on verse 8 uh, where you said that the prophecies would fail which means that they would be uh, fulfilled and the tongues would cease because we'd have a perfect language but then it says that the knowledge shall vanish away you didn't comment on that that you have a comment now on the, on the knowledge that will vanish away well sure he says in verse 9 we know in part so we don't have full knowledge. We have knowledge, but that knowledge is subject to correction. We know in part. And he says in verse 10, um, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. So there's all kinds of things that we know in the church, only to find out afterwards that we were wrong. And so it's knowledge we have. It's important to have knowledge, but we have it in part. And so there needs to be a, a level of humility that we, uh, that we have with that knowledge. motive is quality uh, of the force and the will of God because like uh, can you just say that again please what you say motive is quality of that force the driving force which is the will of God it's the quality of the force that's what motive is is that what you said uh, yeah this is what I'm asking you okay I'm just trying to make sure it's I understand motive because you spoke about yes. motive and I was thinking of Muslims they talk about oh God, God, but it's really fatalism, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but I'm thinking that motive is the quality, uh, it's a driving force of the will of the will of of the will of God. It's the quality of that force. The force itself is God and the will of God, right? Good motive. So if we have good intention. Our intention is to fulfill the will of God, yes. If we have bad intention, we're outside of the will of God. We're doing something other than the will of God. So I think that's what you're saying, and I would agree if that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm basically Very good. that is. Very good. Uh, maybe, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, is this uh, all things, mm -hmm. like uh, bears all things, mm -hmm. hopes all things, the all things, it's not a universal all things, is it? It's, is it mostly uh, what what is in, in the realm of God's will? All things in, in God's will? Yes, in the sense that, for example, we read Revelation 13, and power was given to this head of the beast that was wounded, and it was brought back to life. It was given global influence and power was given to it not just over all the world but specifically over the saints to go to war with the saints that's the objective and not just to go to war with them but to overcome us so in that sense that's the will of God without agape we cannot face this without agape we're going to betray one another and so Christ tells us ahead of time so that we can see what's coming and we can prepare ourselves with the agape that's going to be required so that Stephen, we would be like his example that says, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. And that's the hopes all things. We hope that they'll repent. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's all in the will. It, well, prophecy has to be fulfilled as well. So that's God's will as well. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, I like the word that Laura, Sister Laura used earlier. We are not fatalists. We're not fatalists. And so within the context of prophecy, there's still free will. Exactly. And we have to exercise that free will. And the successful way to exercise it is with agape. That really is this, the formula for success. Build up agape. And Paul says to the Philippians, which we're trying to encourage here, work out your salvation together. So we've got to help each other. We've got to edify each other and, and achieve that collective salvation. We don't want anybody here to fail. We're going to help each other and work it out together. Mm -hmm.
This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.